Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles with me and go to John chapter 21 this morning. John chapter 21. This is not a perhaps typical passage on the resurrection, but it fits excellently with where we are in our study in the book of 1 Peter. Helps us understand some of the things that Peter will even say to us and continue to speak to us as we consider uh, this passage together. Uh, This coming week, the pastors, the rest of the pastors, several men in the church will be going to a conference for most of the week. So, as I told you last week, we'll have a guest speaker with us, um, a, a brother pastor from a sister church. He'll be speaking again more specifically on the resurrection. So, we'll look forward to hearing him again next week. We'll look at our text, verses 15 through 19, in just a few moments. But consider with me, if you would, where Peter is as we enter into this story now. What is your greatest spiritual failure? It's a difficult question in a lot of ways, isn't it? What do you hope no one ever finds out about your heart? Have you ever been overwhelmed by a failure in your life, wanting to just kind of hide away from others because of your shame and guilt? You've been tempted to maybe just say, that's it, I I can't do this. Maybe you feel like as a sinner, God would never want you because just how much you've rejected his love. Jesus knows very clearly what is in each of our hearts. And in our text today, we will see that he is eager to forgive. Our Christ loves to restore fallen disciples. But repentance is required before forgiveness and restoration can be received by him. I want to consider what has happened in the life of Peter. Jesus had said to him, truly I tell you, This very night, on the night of that last supper, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they, the rest of the disciples, all said the same. We pick the story up in another gospel. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they, this crowd of people, said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. Now in another gospel, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. They made eye contact after those three denials. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. In this chapter, Jesus appears to seven of his disciples by the sea of Galilee after his resurrection. We were told that this is the third time he'd appeared to them. We're told in both Luke 24 and in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus had already at some point appeared to Peter. 
Jesus will soon leave his disciples. And yet before he does, he seeks an audience with these seven men in order to publicly restore Peter after his humiliating fall. Our text this morning will teach us that Jesus does not hesitate to forgive and restore weak and unfaithful followers. Let's consider our text this morning in verses 15 through 19. And we know this is God speaking to us this morning. Verse 15 says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's ask for God's help and strength as we consider this text together. Father, we come before you recognizing that we indeed are sinners. We are the weak and unfaithful followers of Jesus Christ. And though this is clearly Peter's story, we can locate ourselves here within these pages. Lord, all of our sins, each one of them is a denial of your right to be our king. So we're guilty of the same things. And we come before you asking for your grace, for your help to open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear your word and respond. We praise you for how you work always through your word to accomplish your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to consider this text from the vantage point of what Jesus is seeking to accomplish in Peter's life. When we first read this passage, it's very easy to look at it from Peter's perspective. How is Peter feeling? How should he be responding? What's going on in his heart and mind? But I want to understand from the very outset that this is a passage about Jesus. So first, we see that Jesus initiates repentance. We should notice as we begin this section, who is the one beginning, initiating all the action in this narrative? Who starts this conversation? Who pursues who? Who directs all of the comments and the thoughts? Jesus seeks out Peter. Jesus initiates his restoration even through this difficult conversation. He meets Peter right where he is in the shame of his sin. 
And let's not rush through this too quickly. This isn't just easy for Jesus because he's the son of God. Consider the pain, the hurt that Jesus bore by Peter's denial. It was personal. It was painful to him. This was the man who stood by him throughout everything. This is the one who'd been closest with Jesus. In his confidence, he says, even if everybody else runs away from you, I won't. And Jesus and Peter, the gospel writer records that detail that they connected eyes. And though Peter is grieved in that moment, think of what Jesus must have been feeling. Jesus then asks Peter a very significant question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is intentionally leading Peter to fully face the depth of his denials of his sins with this question. We're supposed to make the connection between the denials and the restoration. And John highlights this in several ways. First, notice the name that Jesus uses for Peter. Throughout John's gospel, he almost always calls him Peter. But here he says, Simon, son of John. This is the very first name we are introduced to Peter with in chapter 1, verse 42. Jesus identifies him as Simon, son of John, and tells him he will be called Cephas, the rock, or Peter. It's kind of like when a child has done something wrong and his mother calls him by his full given name to get that attention, right? It's almost as if Jesus is indicating here that they need to start again at the beginning when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. Perhaps there's even hope in this that Peter, you can begin again. Second, John is highlighting where this conversation is headed by including a small detail that would be very easy for us to overlook, but I don't think it is unintentional. The disciples are now gathered around a small charcoal fire. We heard that read earlier in this chapter. Now, when do you think the last and only other time that a charcoal fire is specifically mentioned in this gospel? I'll read it for you from chapter 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. John wants us to make that connection. And finally, and most obviously, Jesus repeats this question three times. Three denials, three affirmations. It's as if Jesus, as a spiritual surgeon, is placing Peter under the knife. In order to remove that cancerous growth of sin in his life, he has to be fully opened up. The surgeon must address the affected area in order to remove the sin. D.A. Carson comments, whatever potential for future service he had therefore depended not only on the forgiveness from Jesus, but also a reinstatement amongst the disciples. I think we'll understand that a little bit more as we go. But why does Jesus put Peter through such a painful 
conversation like this, this is a really pointed question. Do you really love me? And why repeat it three times if he knows it will bring Peter to feel such grief? It's certainly not because Jesus doesn't love Peter. We can't conclude that if someone introduces pain into our life like a parent, that it's because they don't love us. God chastens every son that he loves. Biblical love does not ignore sin. God's love doesn't pretend that sin isn't there. It doesn't whitewash it. But it leans into it. It says what it is. And it points the way forward to forgiveness and restoration. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for Peter. He's not doing this to Peter. He's doing this for him. We see this further in the question that he asks there in verse 15. Do you love me more than these? Now, what is this question referring to? What is Jesus saying? What comparison is being made here? There are a few options. And I've always thought and even heard that the option is that Peter had gone back to his former profession. So, do you love me more than fishing, your profession? Maybe even your identity as a fisherman. And maybe Peter's being tempted to abandon Jesus' call to ministry. That's certainly possible. And the text doesn't tell us explicitly which option there is. But I do think there's another option that I've been convinced of. I think it makes better sense of this text. And see if you agree. After the twelve had celebrated the Passover supper together, Jesus prophesied that they would all fall away. Matthew records this in chapter 26, verse 31. And listen carefully. Then Jesus said to them, the twelve, you, all of you, will all fall away because of me this night. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Peter answered him, though they all fall away, the, uh, the other eleven, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, this very night, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will de not, not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. With who in Matthew 26 is Peter comparing himself? What does this demonstrate about how he views himself? How he views the others? Even how he views Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ right now for Peter is the stepping stool for his exaltation. I'm stronger than my brothers. I'm more committed to God's way. That last supper, Peter is convinced of the sincerity of his own courage and good intentions. He's placing his confidence in his own abilities, even though he does not know what truly is coming. Even though Jesus, the Son of God, said, you will fall away. Peter says, no. Think about how sure of himself he really is. He's filled with pride. He's filled with self-dependence. He's convinced that he'll be able to stand. And Jesus now here at the seaside is essentially asking Peter, if he stands by those words, do you really love me more than all the others? And yet even here, Jesus is not put off 
by Peter's foolishness, his haste, his arrogant boast. Listen to what Luke records of Jesus' prediction. Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, and you will, strengthen your brothers. Doesn't this demonstrate to us that Jesus is even more ready to forgive and restore us to himself than we are to repent and ask for his forgiveness? This demonstrates the heart of Jesus for failing and weak and unfaithful disciples. With Jesus, no failure of his followers is ever final. Jesus' love and mercy for failing disciples is greater than even this offense, than any offense that you might have committed. Now notice how Peter responds to Jesus' question. It's in the affirmative, but he's dropped any thought of loving Jesus more than any of his fellow disciples. He never comes back to that again. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's just, I believe he's ashamed of his rash words of comparison. The word you in that sentence, as in you know, is emphatic. As Peter now no longer appeals to his words, his boasts, his self-confidence, his actions. Instead, he appeals to Jesus' sovereign knowledge of his heart. You know that I love you. That's all I can stand on. It's easy for us to simply read over these words, but can you put yourself in Peter's place? His answers are sincere. They're much more humble than I first recognized as I began to look at this passage, it's as if he's saying, in spite of my bitter failure, I really do love you. I know you have no reason to believe that, but I do. Looking back on our sin, seeing it for what it is, is always humbling. It's not a pleasant task. But it's necessary in order to pursue true repentance. We have to be brought to the end of ourselves. And that's what Jesus is doing for Peter. As this pattern continues, Peter finally in the third time is deeply grieved when Jesus asked this question. The word for grieved here is a strong word. It doesn't just mean upset or distraught. It means deeply saddened. It's used of a person who's weeping, being overcome by grief. And now his third reply changes. He no longer answers, yes, Lord. Now he relies fully on the Lord's intimate knowledge of his own heart and motives. You know everything. Peter's humbly recognizing he has no ground to stand on. His love has been tested. It's failed. One author notes, perhaps at long last, Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength and has realized the hollowness of affirming his own loyalty in a way that relies more on his power of will than on Jesus' enablement. 
coming to Jesus as a guilty sinner and receiving not judgment and rejection, but forgiveness and grace, that fuels our love for him. Luke 7, when the sinful woman anoints Jesus' feet with her tears, anoints him with perfume as he dined with Simon the Pharisee, Jesus said of her that she loved much because she'd been forgiven much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. It's not that anyone is truly forgiven only a little. Or that there's a difference in the size of our sins. That's not the theological point that he's making. Certainly some sins have different punishments or consequences. We've all sinned repeatedly and flagrantly. But not all realize how much they've been forgiven. The cost. Such people love Jesus little. Such people are like Peter there at the supper. I can follow you in my own strength. But when God opens your eyes to the depths of your sin, the nature of your heart, and says your sins are forgiven, even though he knows you don't deserve it, your love for Jesus grows. So remember how much you've been forgiven. Repentance begins when blame shifting ends. When we don't keep saying it's my circumstances or if only I had a different spouse or different kids or the people around me would act better. And notice that Jesus never talks about Peter's behavior. He goes deeper, doesn't he? He doesn't say, Peter, will you stop lying about me? He doesn't say, Peter, will you be loyal to me even when there's pressure? He goes to the heart of his sin. Peter, what do you really love? What's the root sin beneath the behavioral sin? The heart of Peter's sin was pride and self. And at the heart of our own sin is always, every sin, is this desire to play God, to push him to the margins of our life, to say, you don't get to tell me everything I should do. I want to hold on to this love. Every one of our sins is denying him his right to be at the center. Peter will, Peter will write in 1 Peter 5 that God resists the proud. He must hold the proud at arm's distance, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, our pride refuses grace. We don't recognize our need of it. And Christ must hold us away until we recognize how much we need him. Though he will still pursue us. Jesus came to rescue sinners. And we must understand our need before we can be healed. Jesus lived and died to restore sinners. Identify yourself there. He does that to bring them to himself. To put them into his service. Not because they're worthy. But to magnify his grace. This passage leads us to worship Jesus. We can't worship Peter. So what does godly repentance look like? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, in this story here at the end, we have a clear example of that verse, don't we? 
compare Judas's grief and response to Peter's. Their grief over their sins. Both men weep bitterly. That doesn't define what godly grief is. One is restored. One cannot handle his guilt. Ungodly grief feels sorrow over the outcome of our choices. It's still focused on self. It still continues to push God out to the margins of life. It's still focused on self-pity. It will not turn to God. But godly grief refuses to look at self. It stops shifting the blame. It won't accept excuses. It will look sin full in the face. True repentance admits what God already knows and runs to him. It makes much of him. Self-centered regret runs from God. Godly sorrow and true repentance run toward him. I want you to see how this played out in Peter's life. All four of the Gospels record Peter's denial. But which one does so in the most unflattering light? In the Gospel of Mark, we read of Peter's denial. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He curses himself before these people. Now, who did Mark rely on for his gospel? It's Peter, isn't it? It was Peter. Peter's not afraid to recount just how fully, how deeply he'd failed Jesus. True repentance leads us to freedom in Christ. We don't have to be afraid of just how awful our sin is. We don't have to shift the blame in order to preserve some of our dignity. Our dignity no longer matters. We don't have to fear what others will think of us if they really knew the truth about how ugly our sin and our pride and our hearts are. True repentance, we're told in 2 Corinthians, leads to freedom because we can humbly admit who we are and then we can take comfort in the grace that God gives to us. That he loves us in spite of our ugliness. Author Jerry Bridges emphasizes the value of godly sorrow this way. He writes, sin grieves God. We must not downplay the seriousness of it in the life of a believer. But we must come to terms with the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sins. Repentance is one of the Christian's highest privileges. Do you think of repentance in that way? A repentant Christian focuses on God's mercy and grace. Any moment in our lives when we bask in God's mercy and grace, is our highest moment. It's when we are most out of the way. When we fail, and fail we will, the Spirit of God will work on us and bring us to the foot of the cross where Jesus carried our failures. That is potentially a glorious moment. And he concludes, one who draws on God's mercy and grace is quick to repent, but also slow sin so jesus pursues peter in his guilt and shame now he goes further as a surgeon he doesn't just open peter up that'd be a terrible way to do surgery or heal somebody he addresses the issue and he restores peter to health and service so secondly jesus restores to service each time jesus asks this question do you love me he follows up with a command feed my sheep 
Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. How do we know that Jesus is restoring Peter here? Well, consider what Jesus had said about a sheep in John 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and carries nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. In a lot of ways, Peter had acted like that hired hand who ran in the face of danger. And yet now, Jesus, the good shepherd who loves his sheep so much, he lays his life down for them. He turns them over to Peter. He commissions Peter to care for them, to feed them. Matthew Henry writes of this reconciliation. Christ, when he forgave Peter, trusted him with the most valuable treasure he had on earth. Isn't that incredible? Now, does this restoration mean that Peter's now fully mature, fully sanctified, without some of the same weaknesses? Absolutely not. And doesn't that magnify the grace of Christ all the more? Christ is willing to use imperfect, weak, immature believers to serve him through the strength that he supplies. You see, again, it's not about us. Peter, through his failure and restoration, understands even now more fully that his responsibility is to set his gaze on Christ. Not his own abilities, not his own purposes, not his own strength, but on Christ. Because Jesus loves to restore fallen disciples. He's not afraid to entrust his sheep to imperfect shepherds and followers. He knows the mistakes they'll make. And he does this because he's still keeping them. He's still shepherding them, and he's shepherding the under-shepherds. There are no perfect servants, only a perfect shepherd. This call to feed and care for the sheep is first a call specifically for Peter. But Peter will then apply it in 1 Peter 5 to the elders, the leaders of the church. But it also applies to all believers who serve in ministry. If you're caring for any other believer in any way, you're tending his sheep. Every member in a body, in a church family, as one of God's people, are called to this kind of ministry. And we're first to remember that they're not our sheep. No church family belongs to the pastors of the church. No children's ministry or class belongs to that teacher. No believers in a family belong in a spiritual sense to those parents. Every ministry and area of Christian service must be entered into with this sober understanding that we serve the great shepherd of the sheep. Our priorities have to be pushed aside. Understanding our stewardship in this way means we must prioritize humility before him and gentleness with those for whom he He spilled his blood. Do you view your service in the church, in your home, with your families, as subordinate to his care of his people? Jesus gives us a demonstration, an example of how to care for weak, immature, often failing, vulnerable sheep. So will you let his careful and gracious care demonstrated here shape 
how you care for others. Sheep aren't very easy to care for, are they? They're often very frustrating. We're often very frustrating. They're not perfect. And it's just like parenting in that way. But we know that as we seek to shepherd our children for his glory, he's continuing to parent us. That's how this is happening. The key here is to serve others out of the overflow of your love for Christ. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Peter, do you love me? Then care for my sheep. As you grow deeper and more secure in your love for him, your service to others will then become more gracious, more humble, more gentle, more loving. Theologian John Owen wrote back in 1657, Believers obey Christ as the one by whom our obedience is accepted by God. Believers know that all their duties are weak, imperfect, and unable to abide in God's presence. Therefore, they look to Christ as the one who bears the iniquity of their holy things. He's saying our service before God is never perfect, never without need of his grace. And another Puritan puts it this way, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. I love that quote. We must always depend on his grace, even in our obedience. Jesus had initiated Peter's repentance. He restores him to service. Finally, Jesus calls him to obey. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus will prophesy Peter's future suffering. Verse 18 at first appears somewhat confusing to us. It, it sounds like a proverb. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What Jesus is doing here is likely predicting that Peter will die by crucifixion. The expression, to stretch out your hands, was widely understood to refer to crucifixion. Now, do we have any real reason to understand the proverb in this way? Yes, verse 19. John gives us the explanation. He tells us what Jesus means. This Jesus said to show what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Earlier in John 13, 36, when Peter had boldly proclaimed he would die with Jesus, Jesus had responded this way, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Consider how Peter now understood how God could be glorified through death now that he was talking to the risen Christ. Death was not the end. It did not have the final say. This pronouncement didn't have to control him by fear. Peter fully embraces these truths in his first letter, doesn't he? Jesus in his grace is telling Peter, you'll face this test of being identified with me again, even when that means great suffering and even death, and you will pass that test. So Jesus commands Peter to follow. Now these words will be repeated as Jesus' final recorded words later in this gospel. Peter will follow Christ, not only in the kind of death that he suffered, but also in bringing glory to God through such a life of commitment. And remember, what are the two most prominent themes in 1 Peter? 
I've mentioned this maybe once or twice. There are two things, suffering and glory. Peter never forgot this conversation with Jesus. Those themes are woven into his life and his message to other followers of Christ. He had learned these lessons well. His focus is no longer on how he could demonstrate his own strength, prove himself before others. His gaze was fixed on Jesus. Our Christ loves to restore, strengthen, and enable weak disciples because his beauty, his glory, is most clearly displayed to us and others when we're weak. Pastor Kevin DeYoung summarizes, Peter's past failures will not determine his future legacy. Text this morning teaches us that through the initiating, the pursuing grace of Jesus, your past failures do not have to be your future identity. How can Peter embrace a calling like this? Because of the one who called him. Because of the one who said, Peter, follow me. It's because Jesus Christ had come down from heaven. He'd taken on flesh. He died that horrid, cursed death on the cross. He'd propitiated and exhausted the wrath of God for his sin. And by his love, he'd drawn Peter to himself. He'd called him to himself. And then when Peter had stumbled, that same love drew him again. Peter had earlier boasted that he would be willing to lay his life down for Jesus Instead, Peter needed a savior who would lay his life down for him and his failures. And now Peter responds to Jesus, I love you. I will follow. Wherever you lead, I will go. We see that played out through his life. John is finally penning these words, probably after Peter has already been executed. Can you say that this morning? That you love him? You truly love him? They're not just an idle boast. They're not just a dependence on your own strength, your own ability, your own sincerity. Do you understand who Jesus is and what he came to do for you? Do you love him? Are you prepared to follow him? Those things go together. John has said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's a result of loving him. Because the one you follow came such a distance to live for sinners, to die for them. He's returned to glory to prepare a place for each one of those sheep by his power of his spirit. He's with each of his children all the way in between. That's the one who calls to you, follow me. And if you understand who he is and what he's done, you can say with Peter, Lord, you know everything. I love you. I want that love to grow. I'm yours. Show me where I'm to go. Let's close this morning with a word of prayer. Every head bowed and every eye closed, I encourage you to take a moment to consider what you've heard from Christ in this text. His urging for you to love him. His urging for you to put away sin, to repent, to look at it fully, and to rejoice that he's willing to forgive weak, unfaithful, needy sinners.
Our gracious Father, we rejoice in who Jesus Christ is. This passage shows us that his love for us is not conditioned on our performance. If it was, we would not know your love. We see Jesus in his mercy and his kindness. We see Jesus pursuing our repentance. Lord, help us to fully look our sin in the face. But look even more closely at Jesus Christ, whose grace is greater than all our sin. You are eager to forgive. May we believe that. May we pursue you. May we follow you because we love you. Give us grace to respond, not just in this moment, in the quietness of this hour. Help us to respond in the way that we live. May we follow in the footsteps of our master. May we follow even in the footsteps of Peter as he gave his life for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.